Buddhist geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 112, Vajrayana in Plain English. The Japanese Shingang teacher Hokai Sobal joins us again to discuss the development of a Vajrayana in Plain English, which it turns out is nothing other than a massive reinvigoration of the Vajrayana traditions. This is part two of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or a small recurring donation by visiting buddhadharma20.com slash donate. So one of the other things that we wanted to talk to you about, because as I hear these descriptions, I'm like, wow, I'm learning a ton now about what the Shingon tradition's about, mm-hmm. what the practices are about, what the conceptual basis of some of these practices are, mm-hmm. uh, particularly with mantras, which I've not had any personal experience with, mm-hmm. which is really mm-hmm. neat. And I'm wondering, because it's got so much complexity to it, and because traditionally this has been an esoteric tradition, yeah. it's been passed down, like you said, oftentimes from teacher to student in private, yeah. which reminds me of kind of the Mahasiddhas yeah, of India. Yeah, yeah. So I'm wondering now that it's kind of, a world, like you said, where everything's available mm-hmm. and where anyone could stumble upon a book on Shingon and start to say, okay, well, I want to figure out how I could actually do this. I'm wondering what you think Vajrayana traditions in general and Shingon in specific have to do in order to thrive in that world. Wow, that's a huge question. But I know this is something that you're interested in too. Yeah, yeah, very much so. For example, the Tibetan tradition has been presented and published and and translated extremely well, though some people may say only parts have been translated, you know, because it's a a huge collection of of practices and and teachings and doctrines and texts generated through, what, 12th centuries or something, at least, yeah. They've been spending a lot of time writing. (laughs) Yeah, they they had a specialized specialized, uh, class of, of people doing just that. Yeah, kind of like Wikipedia for Buddhists. They've been <laughs> yeah. creating articles yeah, nonstop. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> At the same time, the Shingon tradition, for a variety of reasons, has not been presented that well. There are maybe half dozen uh, decent quality books on Shingon, but mainly written by professors, mm. scholars, and academic people who have not necessarily had a great deal of practical experience, or even if they had because of their sophisticated knowledge and philosophical background, have not been inclined of presenting the tradition in plain English. I remember there was a book, Mindfulness in Plain English. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great title, first of all. And we should have uh, Tibetan Buddhism in plain English. We should have, you know, Japanese Shingon in plain English. Plain English is not a, you know, language for dummies. It's, It's a language for people, you know, that are genuinely interested in these teachings. But the question, what does putting something in plain English mean is an extremely subtle one in this case. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. For my opinion, I've been wondering the same thing. How do you do Tibetan tradition? Because especially when you're talking about using body, speech, and mind in practice, it's even more complicated and mantras and whatnot. It seems like maybe the inside tradition might lend itself a little bit easier to kind of quickly translate something very specific and get right to the essence of it. But I, I wonder if some people look at Tibetan tradition or Shingang Vajrayana and just say, 
that's just not going to work. Yeah, you know what, what, I mean? like, what, what the hell? You know? I'm actually afraid that, like, I find benefit in the ways that you've described, and I'm afraid that it's just going to get sterile, not plain English. You know, we're going to strip out the heart of what is unique about those traditions and mm-hmm. what they offer in terms mm-hmm. of a different practice. So I wonder what you think that plain English is. Is it a completely stripped down, secular, just bare bones kind of practice, or what is it for you? Well, perhaps sometimes it's going to happen like that, yeah? But hopefully, hopefully there would be a process by which these things would be made not necessarily simplified or boiled down to some, as you said, you know, secular version of it or boiled down to some rational explanation and with, with everything else being thrown out as nonsense or gibberish, you know, or simple cultural accretions, you know. Although there is a lot, there is a lot of gibberish. And Definitely. The, there is a lot of cultural accretions. Nothing bad intended with that. Simply, things should be put in the proper context. If something has been accumulated in ages past, if something has been generated by a specific cultural matrix, which has not much in common with our present situation, we should not just translate the language, we should also translate the ritual. We should also translate a grander vision of our human role. Okay? Which wouldn't mean we should alter the essential Buddhist orientation or the ground, path, or fruition levels. We should reformulate these things to really make sense in a post-modern or post-postmodern situation in which we find ourselves. So basically, what does that mean? There, there has been a historical process by which teachings were introduced in, in the Buddhist continuity of uh, 25 centuries. The first more fundamental and more hardcore teachings were the teachings of the Buddha's lifetime and the teachings directly after the Buddha's uh, demise. Now, these teachings have been preserved in the Theravada tradition, but that doesn't mean at all that all Theravada tradition are those teachings. Mm-hmm. Right? Theravada as well has developed through centuries, has developed its own Abhidharma or Abhidhamma, as Pali language says, which was not even in, in beginnings during the Buddha's lifetime. So we should look things in proper chronological context. But when Theravada was reaching its apex, there also, historically, that's something like uh, maybe 600 years after the, the Buddha's Parinirvana, we saw the arising of another tradition, the Mahayana tradition of India. And later, a couple of centuries later, we saw the arising of another tradition, which was the Mantrayana or the Vajrayana, or even later, a special variant called the Sahajayana. Now, this chronological order is something I believe will repeat itself in the transmission mm. to plain English. Okay? Yeah. We, already, Interesting. we already have a Vipassana in plain English, and I'm happy we do. And the lectures learned with this sort of rendering or translation, we didn't just translate the texts. We also did our best to change the way Vipassana is done. Okay? We have changed the institutions of Vipassana. The Spirit Rock and IMS are not the same as the monastery in either Burma or Sri Lanka. Right. Okay? Uh, there are many virtues in these innovations. There may be some mistakes. Great. We can learn from those mistakes. 
we can build on that knowledge. The next generation can build something even more genuine, but also more effective, okay? And more seamlessly connected to the society and the culture at large from which it grows so that it can benefit the mainstream culture to an even greater degree while developing authentic, hardcore practitioners and, you know, like kick-ass realizations at the same time mm. with a high degree of transparency from the mainstream for those realizations. That's, that's a huge challenge, of course. Mm -hmm. You can't have a lingo going on which nobody else understands if you want to do that. You must have a transparent language and inspirational approach and a high degree of accountability mm. to do that. You can't be accountable just to the shareholders. You have to be accountable to the general public. And it's a tough one. Then we also have had a nice effort going on in the Zen Western Buddhism among its many representatives, both of the Chinese Chan tradition and the Japanese Rinzai and Soto branches in various forms. Now, some of these Zen uh, teachers have taken the extremely liberal approach. Uh, they have stripped down the Zen from its robes, from its Oryoki style uh, meals, from its uh, bowing, as have some uh, Vipassana teachers, you know, refuse to bow or stuff like that. Yeah, we've interviewed a lot of those those characters. Yeah. <laughs> on the <Yeah>. show. <laughs> well, some of these things are great, you know. Those are very bold attempts. Uh, not always successful, okay? But we must give credit to these attempts as far as they don't come from a, from a place of arrogance or, uh, you know, superficiality or simply inability to, to do the thing in an integral manner, you know, in, in a full manner, completely committed to doing it properly and thoroughly. Now, as far as this comes from a sincere and well-contemplated intention, these things may as well be errors and big mistakes. But we can learn from that and we can improve on that. Okay, And the next generation will do things better. So far, we have seen that the boomer generation is huge in every school of Buddhism. And I'm afraid what will happen when the boomers get really old. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because I don't see the new kids, you know. I don't see new Joseph Goldsteins and Jack Cornfields, young guys and girls, you know, coming into play, uh, doing their thing, pushing forward, you know. Uh, there are very few of them, if, if yeah, yeah if there, there are there, any. There yeah. are some. Yeah. There are some. I, I recognize that. But I believe there are there are not enough. Sure. The, the sheer numbers are not doing for us, you know. The sheer numbers are not on our side. So, And the time is going uh, quickly. Uh, the Buddhist people should be well aware of the time running out. We call it impermanence, you know, <laughs> and we should be able to see it on the macro level, not just on micro level, you know, mm -hmm. not just when you are very concentrated inside your body, but also when you look at your society and culture at large, the decades are going by mm -hmm. and we are a little bit, you know, uh, behind with that. Now, the third attempt should be the attempt of the Vajrayana and in every form, you know, uh, the Tibetan form, of course, is huge and the variety of schools is so rich you know and the thing is you know beautiful but also there are there are reasons why the tibetan styles carry a tremendous burden because of the situation of the tibetan people and the tibetan diaspora the exiled nature of their uh, present attempt to 
perhaps preserve and conserve everything that they can remember is their tradition. And of course, in such a situation, very little, very little attention is paid to update it. You see, it's a natural uh, tendency of the mainstream Tibetan spiritual culture and, and its institutions to do their best to preserve what can be preserved and to transmit it to next generations. Yeah? But fortunately, there have been Tibetan teachers, uh, Tibetan-born teachers, as well as uh, Tibetan Buddhist Western teachers of somewhat a lower level than Tibetan-born teachers, which have done their best to present an uncompromised contemporary version of what the Vajrayana may look like here and now. Uh, we all know the first historical example of such in the West, which was the legendary Chogyam Trungpa. Mm -hmm. uh, his contribution is, you know, uh, his work is like the Holy Scripture, like the first handbook with all its virtues and inadequacies. It was the, the first extremely heroic attempt to mix and hybridize and combine and translate and innovate and revolutionize and reformulate the teachings that were brought to this continent and to, to the Western world in general in a very arcane form. So basically this is like, you know, like trying to make the Enochian magic something that can be run in the New York Times Sunday edition. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's pretty difficult. It, 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 it's an impossible task, yeah. Mm. But, but a huge success has been accomplished nonetheless. Then after this first generation represented by uh, Chogyam Trungpa, we have seen other teachers also doing great work in that regard. Maybe I shouldn't name names, you know, because I will miss, miss someone out. But I would like to stress that it's the new or younger generation of Tibetan teachers which have done a splendid work in not simplifying, but making the essential message and the essential practical application of Vajrayana teachings more accessible. Basically, they have done that by concentrating on the key points of both the doctrine and the practice, and then extrapolating from these key points certain applications that are, in essence, innovations. Okay. In this way, the tradition was both preserved and transformed in the process. I was wondering if we could um, but maybe we, look at some examples of that. Like, what do you see as innovations? Well, the first innovation, of course, is to teach women. Yeah. Okay. The second innovation is to teach non-Tibetans and give them responsible roles. <clears throat> that, that's a huge step, you know. That's a huge step. Then, that's a step the Japanese Shingon school hasn't made yet. Interesting. Because it's it's a Japanese jig, you know. It's it's a thing happening still mostly in Japan, and the tradition hasn't been forced to do that. Unfortunately, classical traditional institutions change not out of their own will to change, or you know, or to push the times <laughs> and to be a sort of a progressive force, but they change when they realize they are going to die if they don't change. Mm -hmm. So. This is not a pessimistic thing. It's, a, it's just the way it was uh, until this point. If we remember, at its beginning, Vajrayana was, was like a uber geeky and uber progressive wave of Buddhism in India. 
But then, in some strange turn of events, it turned out to be a very conservative thing. Mm -hmm. That's strange, you know? Uh, in some ways, we can say the spirit of innovation and the spirit of boldness and the spirit of outrageousness. <laughs> That's a popular word. A spirit of outrageousness, a spirit of artistic and intellectual and social and cultural and meditative outrageousness has been lost somewhere in every example. And we must tap that spirit again and use it to do some pretty simple things like explain what the thing should look like and what the thing actually looks like when it's brought to its natural conclusion. Mm -hmm. And basically explain in first-person terminology what the path and fruition looks like. Instead of using big words and arcane language and doctrinal categories and, uh, and you know, philosophical posturing, yeah, we should use some pretty personal examples of how fruition works when the three bodies are realized. Right, and that's traditionally part of the way that it's not described. It's almost never described in the, maybe Milarepa's songs of realization are an example. Of, that's, that's one example, yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the founder of Shingon School, Kukai, was also a very creative and productive poet yeah. and a sculptor. Sculpture is also one way of doing it, you know. You can do something which is shocking. How about web design? In, in sculpture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Absolutely, you know. Every kind of creation, even architecture, instead of, you know, rebuilding traditional Japanese monasteries or Tibetan gompas in the West or Germany, that's like 12th century architecture. <laughs> so... We should use some, you know, some creations, some shocking new expressions in yeah. architecture, in painting, in music, you know, in podcasting, in web design, in everything, in the clothes we wear. What does shocking mean, first of all? It's another even simpler word than outrageousness. It means it stops your attention. It stops you. It stops you in your steps and makes you pay attention. It attracts your attention and you go, wow. What is this? So the next thing that happens is you want to know what that is. That's what shocking means. Mm -hmm. okay? It's not shocking to hurt or shocking to, you know, to produce oblivion or shocking to produce drunkenness or getting high or anything else. Shock is used to produce curiosity, okay? To produce a sharp interest in what's happening and to bring you into your body right now, okay? To make you alive. The shock makes you alive. The shock wakes you up. It, it stops you in your steps and makes you alive right now. And you stop and you go, wow, what's this? So that's how it should work to begin with. We should go back to the very beginning to find ways how to do this. And then gradually come to a plain English conversation about that. Because when you see something shocking by... I don't know, Jackson Pollock or Kazimir Malevich from Russia, or when you read about the work of Tesla in the electricity yeah. and science, you know, when you hear about Einstein, when you hear about Leonardo da Vinci, there is a shocking quality yeah. to their work, right. you know? And then we sit at a table and we speak in plain English what that means. You know, we go, oh my God, 
the guy was in the, you know, 13th century, the guy was in the 19th century, and he did stuff we still try to unpack. So that's a plain English way of talking about it. We should bring that sort of conversation into our discussion of even the most arcane ideas. And then people who are qualified, people who have been there, done that, brought things to fruition, will be more than able to answer the 19-year-old's question about what this is. If he cannot answer, he is outdated or unrealized, or both. I believe there is a lot of loyalty, yeah, which is a beautiful virtue, especially little present in these times. And we try to overcompensate. We don't have this experience of, of loyalty, of service, and of not being a traitor, you know, <laughs> things like that. We want to be a lawyer over our heads, you know, and I think we overcompensate with that. So I don't think there is so much being outdated necessarily or unrealized. I think very often the question is that we think that by being, being perhaps a little bit too bold or being too frank or being too open about things, that we are somehow bringing a risk factor But, hey, buddy, this has never been a game of playing safe. So we can't play this safe because the time is going faster and faster. I'm sure you guys and the rest of you geeks out there are aware of the change in the speed of time mm. and the speed of development and the change in the rate of shifts in both society, technology, culture. We need at least the same a rate of, of, of change in, in contemplative things, you know. There are two dimensions in every vehicle, whether the Theravada early vehicle, whether the Mahayana as represented in the Zen and some other less known schools, whether the Vajrayana or the esoteric vehicle. There is the unmanifest, eternal, timeless truth of the Dharma. Okay? And then there is the expression of that in the relative world, in condition times, in specific cultural, social life conditions, and the skill, willingness, courage, and inspiration to play along by the rules given by those conditions and to express what is inexpressible in those terms. So these two dimensions must not be confounded or confused to a point where we treat the relative as if it was the timeless. We must change the relative. It's a very simple fact. Everything else is changing, and so must the Dharma. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram as well as many others. For more information and to register, 
visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.